Money makes the world go round, and for medical colleges, it's often in short supply. But in the last five years, the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners has seen a gold rush. After running into a little financial trouble a few years ago, the RICGP has now built up such a stash of funds that this year they're putting away $6.5 million into a reserve fund for a rainy day. It's kind of an envious position to be in as an association. But the CEO who made it happen is also bowing out now, announcing her resignation just last week, uh, and also just five days, I believe, before the GP19 conference, and that was after 11 years with the college. Yeah, it was quite a dramatic week last week. And today we're joined by TMR reporter Penny Durham, who is down in Adelaide for the college's annual conference. Welcome back, Penny. Hello. How was the conference in Adelaide? It was quite busy and interesting. If you've been reading our boss Jeremy Nibbs' stories lately, you might have been expecting that there would be some fireworks or maybe some visible discontent at the annual conference, but you would have been disappointed. It was all fairly positive as far as I could detect, at least. Um, although obviously out of about 41,000 members, there were about 1,500 at the conference and of them there were maybe 150 at the annual general meeting. So obviously they're going to be the ones who are the most engaged members of the college. And later in this episode, we'll be joined by the publisher of the Medical Republic, Jeremy Nibbs, and he'll be looking at the latest financial report from the RECGP and how the college is spending your money, uh, and also to speculate a little bit into possible future directions for the organisation. But back to the conference, Penny, what were people saying about the college's finances? Well, what we obviously identified from the annual report, as you mentioned, and what was acknowledged at the AGM is that the college is in a very strong asset position. That is, it has buckets of cash and other assets, uh, which is in a bit of a contrast to the members it represents who have been falling behind other specialist physicians financially and in their perceived status. That's if you listen to the college's own campaigning. Uh, the college this year, that's you know, 2018-19, had a total operating surplus of nearly $7.5 million, and 6 and a half of which they've put into a rainy day fund, uh, which they hope will grow to $15 million. And um, in recognition of all this cash, they've frozen membership fees this year rather than raise them, as they normally would. At the AGM, Martin Walsh, who's the chair of the Finance Committee, said that the surplus had even come as a bit of a surprise to the college, but he stressed that it was not profit as such, but a timing issue to do with the flow of revenue, which if you're not an accountant, as I'm certainly not, sounds like a bit of a technicality. Uh, Most of that revenue came from membership and education, some of it from government funding. I did talk to President Dr. Harry Nespelon briefly after the AGM, and he also said that the college, which is of course a non-profit organisation, always aimed for a zero balance sheet, though he interestingly did suggest that that might not always be the case. He said the RICGP will have to do a lot more political advocacy to avoid having its members falling even further behind, and he warned that if it didn't, then GP rates might actually go back in the freezer. Um, Whether that is actually a strong likelihood or if it's a politically savvy thing to tell your members, I'm not sure. But here's our interview. Okay, I'm here at GP19 with Dr. Harry Nespelin, and we're in your hometown, I believe. Yes, this is my hometown. This is where I grew up. Uh, went to university, did medical school, even did law and economics here, and then um, moved off to the eastern states for brighter lights. I didn't realise that about the law and economics. 
The big news of the week here is that uh, your CEO, Zena Burgess, has resigned. And um, what qualities will you be looking for in your next CEO? And will you be looking internally or outside the college for a fresh perspective or new and different skills? Well, we'll be looking for the best person for the job. Uh, we certainly do have an interim CEO and there would be an expectation that he would apply for the job. Um, what are we looking for in the next CEO? Uh, look, the board needs to make its decisions about our strategy, which we'll be doing in the next um, month. And then once that's done, that will give us a better view about what skills that we're looking for in our new CEO. Having said that, I would expect that advocacy would be a very important part of that role. So I don't think we're just going to be looking for someone who can manage the college. That will be part of their job. But it certainly won't be all their job if I have anything to say about it. So uh, Dr Burgess certainly leaves the college in a very strong position financially. Uh, you're the chair of your finance committee, Martin Walsh, was uh, saying that that $7.4 million total operating surplus came actually as a bit of a surprise to the college and you've put $6.5 million of it into a reserve fund. But how are you planning to leverage that position or you know, translate that wealth to benefit your members who, as you've been pointing out all year, are not themselves rolling in cash? The college has decided, or the board has decided, to set up a reserve fund for those rainy days, which inevitably will hit the college as we go over the next 10 to 15 years or even beyond. Um, we're looking to put aside about $15 million. The usual budget for the college is to end up with a zero profit, um, and I think the board's going to need to think about whether that's the right way to go in going forwards. In answer to the question about our members, um, as we announced today, there will be no rise in the membership fees for next year. And there is certainly a strong push amongst a group of us that we should be investing more in our members um, and helping our members with their day-to-day -day activities as GPs. Between the board and the executive, does the college have all the skills it needs to push the interests of GPs and stop them falling further behind? You said, and you're warned in your speech this morning, um, that there could be another freeze or worse on the horizon if the college doesn't engage sufficiently in the political process. There's no doubt in my mind that there will be another freeze or worse um, if the college uh, and general practice in general doesn't engage in the political process and become active advocates for general practice. The college has excellent staff when it comes to policy and advocacy and we're very fortunate to have those staff members and part of the reason why we do have those staff members is because the college is in a position of being able to employ better staff because we're able to offer hopefully um, better benefits for those staff. If the college is going to invest in its members, going back to the question before, advocacy in my view is that number one issue. Um, I've said before that the reason why you should join the college is because the college advocates on your behalf as a GP. If we don't do that, we will go and have what happened to us again in 2014. And um, now that the Medicare rebate freeze has been thawed, what is your chief priority for advocacy for 2020? Well, first of all, we don't accept that the thaw is enough. So. We're still advocating strongly for the billion dollars that we lost since the freeze started. And as I've said on many occasions, that when we get to 2023, we'll be about $2.3 billion short as, a, as a, an industry. Worse still, um, part of that is every year that the indexation is applied, we lose about $40 million in real dollars. 
And at the end of the day, um, we're going to run into this problem where either practices close down or they start charging fees, and we're already seeing the latter happening. In a positive note, uh, look, um, college at the moment has uh, got the ability to go forward um, and to improve the way that we interact with our members. When I first became president, one of my big issues was about the college becoming us. In other words, that our members talk about the RACGP as us rather than them. It might sound a little bit subtle or a bit corporate, but it's really important that members see the college as part of their work and not getting in the way of their work. So we've got an opportunity now to help change the culture of the college so that it works for its members um, rather than often what it's been seen in the past to be working against its members. Dr Nesplan, thank you very much. And Penny, they also announced the new chair of the board as well while you were in Adelaide, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. So Christine Nixon is the new chair of the board of the RICGP, replacing Charlotte Hesby. Um, Dr Nixon is also a deputy chancellor of Monash University. She's not a doctor. Most people will actually remember her as Victoria's police commissioner from 2001 to 2009. And she was the first woman in Australia to ever run a state police force. And Penny, anything else that happened at the conference that you want to report? Nothing major. This is a minor thing, but um, this sound is not money. It's the sound of one lanyard jingling. So imagine thousands of such lanyards jingling in an auditorium. And perhaps RSCGP have a think about your lanyard design. <laughs> I'd love to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next up, we're inviting our publisher, Jeremy Nibbs, on the show to dig into the RACGP financial reports a little bit deeper. But before we get to that, we're going to take a little break and share an interview on gout with Dr. Erwin Lim. Dr. Lim is a rheumatologist based in Sydney, and he's also the editor of Rheumatology Republic, one of our mastheads. This interview was sponsored by Menorini. Thank you, Dr. Lim, for being here today. Would you be able to describe your position in the field? Sure. I'm a rheumatologist and I practice in Parramatta and Chatswood in Sydney. Uh, my second role is as a director of a group a multidisciplinary clinic that involves uh, a lot of allied health professionals because um, we feel that a lot of our rheumatic diseases needs a coordinated group approach. Can you describe to us why there's still such a stigma about gout? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, many patients, by the time they come in to see me for their gout, have tried all sorts of diets and they tend to try to do so much, yet they still get recurrent attacks. And I think the stigma surrounds this belief that it's their fault that they get gout. And that's a little bit perpetuated in uh, what you can read online and perhaps what other people have told them. While diet is important, while definite reduction in alcohol, which is a big elephant in the room, because uh, while a lot of people will reduce what they eat, they tend not to look so much at uh, the amount of alcohol they consume. Um, diet alone plays a small part in the management of gout. And that's because a lot of gout is genetically based. Uh, you have a predisposition to either make too much uric acid or you don't excrete enough of it. And so while diet is really important in reducing very common comorbidities such as obesity and hypertension, 
it alone is insufficient for many people with gout. For most, particularly if they're in you know, the doctor's rooms with their gout, they will need some form of urate-lowering therapy, and, and that's unfortunately a medication. But the good news is that gout is a curable disease. All yeah, right. so it's a curable disease, great news, but why is it so poorly managed? I think a lot of people don't see it as a curable disease. And, and, and by the term curable, yes, unfortunately, you will need medication. So it's not curable without medication, but it's really a numbers game. So gout is a problem where you have too much uric acid uh, accumulation and deposition. And over time, that irritates the joints uh, and can irritate kidneys as well, but mainly joints. And it causes acute episodes of um, joint flare. If you can reduce the uric acid in the bloodstream to a uh, significant number, and and there's a special number for this, and this magic number is 0.36 millimole per liter for people who have gout without TOFI. And the... Uh, for people with TOFI, we try to aim for less than 0.30 millimoles per liter. But if you can attain this magic number and keep the person at this number for at least months to years, the episodes of gout gradually become less and less and less. And for successful uh, uh, occasions uh, where you do manage to achieve this, people should be cured. Oh, well, that's great that there's a target for people to aim at. Yeah, so this yeah. is this is what's, I think, um, not well known enough, that there is a very clear target. It's one of these diseases where if you meet the target, you get an amazing result. So I think a lot of our, my GP colleagues are well aware of the target for blood pressure, for example, well aware of the HbA1c target for diabetes, but they should really be putting gout in the same category. Uh, and in fact, the results will be even better. Are there any other like common barriers to effective management strategies? One of the points I'd like to make about management is that often people stop their uric acid lowering medication during a flare. This is not needed. And in fact, uh, it might actually make the flare last longer and make it more difficult to control recurrent flares. Uh, the second thing I'd like to remind people is that when you first start uric acid lowering therapy, that we typically use a low dose and then work it up in a stepwise manner. And that typically you should be using it with prophylaxis. And the prophylaxis might take the form of colchicine or an NSAID to try to prevent the gout flares that can happen at the initiation phase. Are there any last thoughts that you'd like to leave with GPs to do with gout? I would love people to think of gout as a curable disease. This is one of the only forms of arthritis that we can make a very major and long-lasting effect with very simple therapy. So I think that's, that's the clear-cut message. With gout, we can knock it out of the park. Thank you very much for being on the podcast, Dr. Lim. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So welcome back to the show. In the second half of this episode, we're going to continue unpacking the spending and earning at the RACGP. And we're joined by Jeremy Nibbs, the publisher here at TMR. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be back. So Jeremy, your fingers must be bleeding. You've written so much about the college. 
especially in the last week. Uh, what led you to kick up this storm? Uh, it's a story that I, I've been doing, I've been looking into for a year with another journalist here, actually with Felicity. Um, we looked back 10 years and we started doing a whole lot of statistics on the college. And it's a story that we expedited um, coincidentally with um, incidents that have happened after, but we expedited it after seeing this latest annual report where we saw so much change. So especially around how much money the college was bringing in. And what were some of the major standouts in that report? Oh, I think for the latest report financially, it's how much cash the, the college is now generating. And it's the fact that the cash isn't, they can't even spend it. They're getting so much, so they've started a reserve fund that they just, they call this reserve fund an emergency in case of um, certain things happening. And I didn't think it was very credible, that their excuse for what might happen, given how much cash the college has. I mean, essentially, the, the college is a very wealthy um, entity and it should be able to uh, spend its cash on the right things. So when I had a look at the report, it seems like the college has a pretty rosy outlook so its membership is up to 40,000. It's making good money, as you say. Um, so it's got $6.5 million in cash reserves, which is the first time ever. Um, and it, it's investing in a lot of new projects. But it seems like this upbeat attitude is a bit unsettling if you're a GP um, and you're feeling the pinch financially right now. Do you think the college is doing enough to advocate on the behalf of GPs, particularly around the Medicare freeze? Um, well, it's not my question to answer, but... No, of course they're not doing enough. Uh, they've, they in the constitution. The constitution has two halves to it, and one half of it is we do education, training, and governance around it, and that's been their traditional role and their role ten years ago. But the other part of the constitution says we advocate for GPs, so they're able to conduct their daily business in a manner that will um, be good for their patients and be good for the health of Australia. Well, that advocacy has failed massively in the last five to six years. Um, a few years ago, you might have said, hey, you've still got a chance. They had a lot of money. Um, but now you'd have to say, and I think um, the disconnection of a lot of the members uh, says that as well. So we'll do surveys. Um, surveys have been done uh, by other people. I think Harry Nespelon, the current president, did a survey before he came in. And um, 90% of, 85, 90% of the members are disconnected with the college, they don't understand what goes on, they don't think the college engages with them. Um, so yeah, that's a big fail, that's a big fail. What, what, what's happening with the college is, not only do they have good money, they've got excess good money, and they failed on half their objectives. I mean, but they're not a lobby group, so... Is they it, are a lobby group. They are, they should yeah. be. A they're a declared lobby group now, and I... And um, I think that's part of the confusion, um, maybe a little bit for members, but but in the past, they weren't a lobby group. They were a... Um, and, and traditionally, colleges aren't lobby, lobby groups. Traditionally, they're just educational colleges, groups, right? They're, they're, they're education, training and governance and standards. And, and there, is, there is confusion around that. And there are people who say that the college shouldn't be a lobby group. But the reality is, is that the AMA has lost members. The AMA has less than 6,000 GP members. And the AMA has failed, has failed far worse in a way than the RSAGP has failed because the AMA is the lobby group. It's the original group that everyone entrusted to um, make sure that, doc that you know, doctors of all, of all sorts in Australia were represented in the right way in the minds of politicians. The problem for the AMA is 
GPs are half the population of doctors, and anyone will argue in the Department of Health and the State Departments of Health that GPs are the secret of the future of healthcare in the country. So if they're the secret of the future of healthcare in the country, how come we haven't paid them for the last six years? And how come they're increasingly downtrodden and they have no power at the federal level where they get paid from? So, you know, the AMA has lost its way. And, and I think what um, Harry Nespelon did here when he started is, hey, you know, we have to be a lobby group. And it, it looks like now it might be going to try and get its act together with lobbying and with far better engagement with members. But they don't talk to the press. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. They don't, they don't talk to the, the media that often. Um, you, consumer media or medical media, they don't talk to the medical media much. Uh, that was a decision, I believe, made by the college uh, a year or two ago. Uh, I, I, I wrote a story about when we first um, went to break, bre break bread with the college and, and it was a very strange meeting and it ended up in um, nothing happening. And um, really the college, the college after that uh, disconnected and, and didn't treat the medical media um, as any normal company would treat media. They uh, didn't get back to us. Uh, they didn't say they'd done anything, but they disconnected both of the medical media, and that's a really, really bad thing to do for the members and for and for the college from a strategic point of view, because um, particularly between Australian Doctor and, and um, the Medical Republic, and Australian Doctor in particular, that has three email dailies news a day, um, they're, they're, you know, they're powerful, pretty powerful, influential organisations. Um, and, you know, to just cut them off and think, oh, we'll do something else. And, I, and, I, and my view is probably what they thought they'd do is start their own media group, and, and GP News is, is part of that, and that might be a debate, and people might see us in conflict saying, hey, they shouldn't have started GP News, which is a sort of a News Corp ABC debate. But really, if you look at the objectives of the college and what they're spending their money on, why would they spend their money? Why would they spend half a million dollars a year starting a a daily news service when Australian Doctor does 85-90% of what they already do. So you've talked a little bit how there might be a growing sense of disconnection between the members and the college and almost like a growing apathy. I mean we see that as well with um, people in mainstream politics but you see it among GPs and even the engagement uh, in things like their latest financial report and perhaps members aren't really aware of what yeah. the college is spending money on. Yeah, I, I think if you get, like, so Felicity and I did the last 10 years of the annual reports, and one thing we looked at was a whole lot of things that cost the college a lot of money and failed, and sometimes failed spectacularly. Now, Oxygen was started 10 years ago. That was the commercial arm of, of the college. I'm not really sure who started it, but it was this big thing where they're going to have this huge commercial arm, but it was a very mysterious organisation. Um, not well reported, uh, and, you know, the failures of it, uh, especially not well reported. And this annual reports they've had for 10 years only reports against things like membership and finances and a few other things. And then it has a lot of commentary on how great everything is, but it doesn't measure, monitor and report against key objectives. And one of the key objectives was advocacy. And they did say in the last annual report, the, the CEO said, oh, you know, our, our um, program of advocacy has resulted in the lifting of the pay freeze, to which I got a comment from many, many people that said, well, if, if we were responsible for lifting it, what, what did we do when it was on its way in and during the last six years, which is a very valid comment. And, and one of the things you could say here is by the time 
it all comes off, it's estimated that GPs will have lost a billion dollars in take-home pay. And, you know, to, to get all that back is, is, is probably impossible now. And to get back to a point where GPs have a, have a place in the minds of society and a place in the minds, first of all, in politicians, is a long road. And if you talk to um, the president, he says, look, it's, it's, a very long, it's a very long game. Yeah, and not to mention as well that with GP training, we know that there's empty spots going in now with every year. Um, that gap is growing in the amount of yeah. um, people picking GP training, and that's a shortfall that won't be made up in yeah, well, the next few years. And that's the other telling figure that was in this report. So, you know, great financial thing, you know, um, membership went up, but, you know, it's a very telling figure that in the last three years there's been a 37% drop in GPs choosing to, tra- in doctors choosing to train as GPs, which is essentially, it's out, you know, the secret's out. Being a GP is a pretty hard road to, to tread and, um, you know, that has to be changed. And if you look at any document, that's coming out of government, it's recognised that in a society and a community where chronic care is coming at us like a tsunami and acute care, the day of acute care is really over and to manage chronic care, to keep people out of hospitals and to have longitudinal care, GPs are the secret, they're the hub and and probably they need a lot of enabling in terms of technology and, and networking to do that. But you know, um, hospitals cost $30 billion a year, GPs cost $10 billion a year, 95% of people see GPs every year, 15% of people go into a hospital. You work that equation out. But if we go into an election, it's a big shiny hospital on the Gold Coast that people want. And there is no question in any strategy document, or you could go to any high level C consultant, and they will tell you that the secret lies with GPs. So we need to get our act together and start paying them properly, start organising them better and start getting them enabled with technology better. So the reign of Xena as CEO is over um, and so she's been making half a million dollars a year on this job but clearly it's time for new horizons for her. So as you say this is a moment for the college to really pivot. Uh, What do you think are the directions that the college should go in say in the next year? Look I think they should um, take their time a bit here. I think um, they, they need a good they need a good communications person in the middle there that gets out to their members and um, gets out to the medical media like us and, um, and, and lays out a plan that has some of these things in it so people around the college that are important and influential start to believe. I think after that they have to think very carefully about how they got themselves into this situation and it's a situation that's my view which is the executive drove the board, the board didn't drive the executive and that they need to look at the governance of that board and how it happened. I think now they'll be fairly aware that they need to be have continuity about a couple of really important things, which is here's what our strategy is and here's what our strategy says we're going to try and achieve, our objectives. So objectives are in the Constitution, one of them is advocacy. Um, well, if they are the objectives, then work backwards as a board. Make sure it's in your strategy. Make sure it's in your reporting. Do more reporting than just the annual general report, but when you do, tie it all together and make it contiguous so so everyone can see everything. And then open up the college to have more means for, you know, the, 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 the members at the lowest possible rank who want to say something can say something. Um, someone said to me, well, they have to swing the public. That's much harder to do. Um, 
because you have it's you know it's very expensive, and you know the public loves GPs already. Uh, I think they just don't understand, um, and a little bit like climate change. Oh, GPs are slowly dying. You know we've got a lot of other problems. We've got climate change as a problem. GPs are slowly dying. You can't really get that message easily through to the public and have them respond. Probably you have to nail a few politicians to the cross over the next few years. Yeah, it's really about raising the profile of GPs among the public and the politicians. And if they can do that and make people think of GPs as indispensable and worth being paid, um, that'll be the difference. Yeah, I think it's a very um, complex problem because, as I said, they know that GPs are important, but there's political expediency and, and from a federal perspective, you can turn that tap off and on. I think um, there's a lot of GPs just putting up with whatever is handed to them. They don't yes. get angry, they just go, OK, I'll work a bit harder, I'll save money a little bit, I'll you know, reorient my business, because yeah. they're small business owners well, and they're clever. There's a universal... It's a very, very good point you're making, because, yeah, they're thousands of small business owners struggling who aren't avarice, avarice, they don't, there's not many with a lot of greed... GPs want to help people. That's their first, um, you know, genetic makeup. They want to help people, so it's harder for them. I, I think at the political level, though, if the RSCGP board can get a roll on, I think that at the political level, pressure can be put on, and pre- and, the, and and the sort of pressure where it's not so much that people need to know that GPs are great; they need to know that their future of healthcare is really in a lot of problems, and there's a lot of screw ups. If you keep on paying GPs like you're paying them and if you keep on building hospitals at the rate you're building them, uh, the two things don't make any sense. And, and at some point of time, you know, consumers do have to get angry. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really good. Thanks. So that brings us to the end of another episode. Yes, and you've also had a very busy week at the RMA conference, Francine. Yes, that's right. So while Penny was in Adelaide with the RACGP, I was over with the other college, the RMA 19 conference, which is hosted by ACRAM and the RDAA. There's so much happening with the college right now and so many different training options and different ways that they're looking at training GPs in the country. Uh, So yes, this week we focus very much on... RACGP and city-based doctors but next week I'll be giving a wrap of everything that's happening in the rural space. So what were some of those hot button issues Francine just to give people a teaser? So for the first time in all of the medical colleges in Australia's history the Australian Defence Force has signed a memorandum of understanding with ACRAM and basically that's going to ensure more training options for army doctors going forward. The other important thing on everyone's mind is the Rural Generalist Training Program and how that might ensure more doctors for the bush and also about how we can entice uh, young doctors out to some of these towns that really need a strong workforce. Great, that sounds like it'll be quite interesting. I look forward to talking to you about that next week. See you then.